I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Brianna Draxler. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, March 8th, 2011. Coming up, scientific performance art and the birth of a new generation of scientist astronauts. You're finally opening up to the space scientist, the field environment that has always been available to, you know, all of our other scientific colleagues. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A study published yesterday in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences indicates that outbreaks of mad cow disease in Europe have triggered a chain of events over the last 40 years that ultimately benefited grassland birds here in North America. Here's how it happened. After European outbreaks of mad cow disease, Europe imported cattle from North America. That meant North America had fewer cattle. Ranchers needed less cattle feed, so farmers harvested less hay. As cities and farms have displaced huge swaths of native prairie, hayfields have become critical habitat for grassland birds, especially unmowed hayfields. The Ontario scientists who conducted the study looked at data from 1966 to 2007, and they say the benefits to birds from living in unmowed hayfields didn't show up right away. But three years after the increase in standing hayfields, 85% of grassland bird species had higher populations. The scientists say their study demonstrates that socioeconomic issues in one region of the world may have profound effects on biodiversity in another. Here in the U.S., as agricultural conservation easements face the budget chopping block, this mad cow study may prove to be a cautionary tale for our grassland birds, for many of those easements that might not get funded involve land full of unmowed hay. You are what you eat, or so the saying goes. New research out of Cambridge University shows that you are what your mother ate, too, at least when it comes to type 2 diabetes. Environmental factors can change the activity of our genes throughout our lives, but the nine months we spend in the womb are especially critical. For instance, it's been known that the quality of a mother's diet during pregnancy correlates with her child's risk for type 2 diabetes. Researchers thought mom's food choices might be causing changes in the way certain genes are expressed throughout her child's life. They tested the idea in rats, which are a well-established model for human diabetes. The result was that a gene called HNF4A, which is shared between rats and humans, was affected by the mother's diet during pregnancy. HNF4A is important during the development of the pancreas and in the production of insulin. Mother rats eating a low-quality diet gave birth to offspring who did not express the gene as well as the offspring of properly fed mothers. And as the rats aged, naturally decreased in gene expression were accelerated in rats whose mothers ate poorly. That led to lower levels of insulin and thus a greater risk of type 2 diabetes. Because HNF4A works the same way in humans as it does in rats, the researchers say this finding is just one more reason for pregnant women to eat a healthy, balanced diet. An apple a day may keep the doctor away, but for some city dwellers, it's hard to get apples in the first place. 
Urban food deserts are cropping up because local grocery stores are either too far away or too expensive. This is in part due to suburban migration. As people leave city centers, grocery stores go with them. Meanwhile, as city property gets more expensive, the remaining grocery stores tend to target urban dwellers with higher incomes, making fresh foods less affordable. To track these trends, professors from Michigan State University in Lansing set out to map their city's food deserts. Professors Phil Howard and Kirk Goldsberry use GIS, or Geographic Information Systems Technology, to collect data on store locations, as well as the selection and prices of healthy foods. They compiled this information to create a visual representation of food access issues in Michigan's capital city, calling it a nutritional CAT scan at the urban scale. They found that less than 4% of Lansing's population lives within a 10-minute walk of a supermarket. Having a car helps, but it increases the cost of getting to the healthy food. And such challenges may not be unique to Lansing. The authors warn that urban food deserts are increasing throughout the United States. What can be discovered at the intersection of science and art? Can visual and performance arts communicate scientific concepts in perhaps more accessible ways for some people than reading a book or journal article? You can find out tonight and tomorrow when Michelle Ellsworth, professor at the CU Theater and Dance Department, shares her new performance art extravaganza, Preparation for the Obsolescence of the Y Chromosome, at the CMU, CU Museum of Natural History at 7 p.m. and is produced by EcoArts Connection. This performance, also known as Preparation Y, second edition, was created in collaboration with global change biologist Robert Goralnik, an associate professor at the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Department at the university. I spoke with Michelle and Rob earlier this morning about the performance and the scientific concepts behind it. So your show is called Preparation for the Obsolescence of the Y Chromosome, also known as Preparation Y Second Edition. So tell me what the show is about. The uh, piece is about preparing for the obsolescence of men, and that works on a micro or a macro level. So men as individuals, you know, if someone dumps you or something, or if the whole species goes. And it's based on some science and personal experience. So what is the science behind this? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> you know, Michelle and I would uh, sit uh, in the museum bio lounge um, on campus and kind of talk over various uh, aspects of, I think we started with the science behind the Y chromosome yeah. and the idea that genes are being lost off that chromosome more rapidly than other parts of the genome. And from there, we had these amazing and often um, I, I've just truly enjoyable conversations that range from the Y chromosome all the way through to extinction of species. This show is mentioned as being scientifically accurate. So how do you do a scientifically accurate performance piece about the Y chromosome's evolution? I do what I can. I read as much as I can, and then I'll, like, I'll read secondary sources, and then I'll try and go to the primary sources, and then I'll take it to Rob and ask him to translate it and make sure I've understood it correctly, because <laughs> sometimes the nature articles get a little dense for me. So you use him as the initial technical advisor of what do these words mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Translator. So then how do you then do the secondary translation 
from words into the performance? Is it mostly a movement piece? There's a lot of words and there's a lot of video. The piece is a performable website, so um, so I'm not always dancing. I have videos of myself dancing. A performable dancing. website. Yes, I've been making performable websites for about five years now, and it just seems handy when trying to address a rather complex situation such as biodiversity and the Y chromosome. Is it a group piece or a solo piece? It's a solo piece. I notice in, in one of the descriptions it mentions a man archive. Uh, do you feel archived, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> in a word. And, uh, <laughs> and what is a man archive, anyway? It, Michelle? <laughs> well, um, so this again goes on. You know, actually, I was kind of inspired in part by Rob Rob's work trying to create a bio-collections digitization hub with this idea that scientists all over the world are collecting bio-information in one place. And so I thought, we should do the same for men. We should try and collect them. Also, Alan Lomax... all the different types of men. Well, at least specimens. So I have, like, man smells. I've been canning man smells, and I make man hands. And I have man dances. I have a large collection of man dances because I do believe in the power of the dance. Uh, should I ask how you collect this collection? Yes, um, this is this is where the science would in fact be quite weak, and I'm I'm hoping that scientists in the future can figure out how to interpret the psychology. It's, or your, the, it's your job to collect. It's the job yeah, of the future to decide right. what to do with that's it. That's exactly right. That's my thinking. So, Rob, I guess after each of these performances. There's a question and answer afterwards, yeah. and you're the the scientist representative for tonight's performance. I that, believe that's right. Yeah. What kind of questions are you expecting? <laughs> you know, I wish I, I wish I knew. Um, I, you know, I think that we're hoping to get a wide um, diversity of just responses to this piece. I mean, I, you know, I, I, and you know, I, I'm hoping that that as people ask these questions, we can kind of bounce bounce off each other like we have in those great conversations already, and just hopefully see if we can be cogent and clear to people about the sort of neat mix between the arts and the sciences. I mean, I love the fact that we get to do this. It's a really um, amazing part of my job to interact with people who, who can interpret in ways that I absolutely cannot. <laughs> Were you involved throughout the rehearsal process? I wasn't. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing the piece tonight, too. <laughs> so what kind of audience are you expecting? What's your target audience for this? Mm, I, I'm afraid I don't ever think about that. Marta Kern is the one who is on, on that. I'm just trying to make a piece that doesn't suck. And that's all I'm really focused <laughs> on. And do you think you succeeded? I think that it is sufficiently dense, and there are many different pools of information and many different strains. So, yeah, I think, I, yeah, I, I'm feeling... I can sleep at night. Is this the first combination you've done in this way of trying to communicate science through performance art? No. Um, a couple years ago, I made a piece with uh, the scientist Jason Neff, and it was about it was called the objectification of things, and it looked at the hamburger and the the environmental implications of the burger. Well, I hope the show goes very well tonight and Thanks. tomorrow, and you'll have to come back and tell us about your next scientific production. Thanks. Thanks very <laughs> much. Thanks. That was Michelle Ellsworth and Rob Goralnik talking about their show Preparation for the Obsolescence of the Y Chromosome. The final two performances of this show will be tonight and tomorrow, March 8th and 9th at 7 o'clock in the CU Museum of Natural History. For more information, call 303-492-6892 or go online to cumuseum.colorado.edu. I'm Brianna Drexler. 
With only two more scheduled flights, the retirement of the space shuttle is imminent. Trips to the space station will now only be possible via Russian spacecraft. Can spaceflight be profitable enough for private companies to succeed in such a risky endeavor? Or will it fizzle out once they run out of wealthy space tourists willing to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for five minutes in space? The key may be luring scientists to ride along and run experiments on these flights. Interest in this new and possibly cost-effective access to space is growing within the scientific community. How on Earth's Joel Parker spoke with two local scientists, Dan Durda and Kathy Olkin, both from Southwest Research Institute, and both training to be among the first in a new generation of scientist astronauts. With NASA seeing the end of the shuttle era, what does that mean for our access to space, and what's next? Well, in colloquial terms, unfortunately for a while, the U.S. is going to be standing there with our thumb out by the side of the road, I think, as an analogy. So we'll be uh, hitching rides with our international partners to the International Space Station for a while. And international partners being? Being primarily Russia at this point, because they're the only ones who can actually launch humans to space uh, on a regular basis to the International Space Station, which is okay. They've been great partners in the past. Uh, it's just going to, unfortunately, though, just limit our access. We'll have fewer crews less often to the station. And that's specifically for going to the space station. That's right. It's Specifically for going to the space station, that's the only way we have to get there will be rides with the Russians. But fortunately, the commercial industry is ramping up its ability to go to space. And so there's corporations like Virgin Galactic and XCOR that will be having suborbital vehicles online relatively soon. You say they're suborbital, so that's not going to the space station. That's correct. They won't be going to the space station, and you won't be able to go orbit the Earth, but you will be able to go up to, say, a 100-kilometer altitude and do science from that location and see the Earth from that location, and that's a really unique thing to be able to do, and commercially. It's the Alan Shepard special. It's where the first two Americans flew in space, and we'll be heading back in that direction again. So these are private companies that are developing the capability to go up 100 kilometers or so up into space. Primarily from from the point of view of space tourism, right? These companies uh, were formed with the basis of understanding that probably one of the early markets to putting more people in space more often this way, putting private people into space, the adventure tourism market, the same kind of people who go and climb Mount Everest and do these sorts of uh, very extreme holidays, if you will. Uh, And now we're seeing that with tourism being the initial impetus, we're now seeing interest in other applications of these particular vehicles, from our point of view, particularly being interested in the, the sort of the research and education opportunities offered by these So for the tourism, they're basically ratcheting up. Someone already summited Everest, so what's the next step up? And they've been very successful in signing up tickets. Well, uh, that was going to be my question. How many people, how how much are the tickets? 200,000. That's what Virgin Galactic is uh, publicly uh, offering at the moment, $200,000. And at that price, they have signed up now well over 400 people. So they have a fair amount of tourist interest at that level. Oh, absolutely. But you're saying that there's also the opportunity for scientists to put out their thumb and hitch a ride. Well, absolutely. And look at it this way. From the company's point of view, the tourism opportunity is wonderful, and I'm I'm very glad that Grandma Next Door is going to get the chance to go. (laughs) This is what we've been looking for, you know, for for 50 years of spaceflight, right, is when am I going to get to go? We're finally getting to that point. What I think the companies are going to find, though, is that while a tourist may fly once, maybe twice, I think they're going to find out that the potential market of government agencies, uh, educational institutions, corporations, purchasing research flights where you're going to purchase not one or two seats at a time, but tens or hundreds of seats at a time. Um, So that's a potentially pretty viable commercial market for them. Tens or hundreds of seats at a time, meaning over a number of different launches. That's right. These vehicles hold 
how many people? So the X-Corps vehicle is called the Lynx, and that holds two people. And so there's the pilot and one person, a tourist, a researcher, an educator, some, so a, something like that. So one pilot, one passenger. That's correct. And then the Virgin Galactic vehicle will take six people up into space. People think about floating around in zero-G. How long do you have where you're floating around? And you can make the pen float in the air in front of you like on 2001. That's right. So you're going to have a few minutes of zero-G time from, say, two to four minutes, and it depends on what altitude the vehicles go up to. And there's also other people besides just X-Core and Virgin Galactic. There's Blue Origin who's mm -hmm. working on... Um, a suborbital vehicle and Mastin and Armadillo. So some of those are unmanned and some of them are manned. So I can see as, as a tourist uh, a few minutes, five minutes floating around and right. and, and the view and of the, the view. Earth. Tell me tell me about the, what the, the view would be. It, the, it's the, you're you're going to be flying up at altitudes that are comparable to some of the lower altitudes that the space shuttle flies. So you are you're going to see the curvature of the Earth, that little thin blue ribbon of the atmosphere. The black sky above you. It'll this look is, like you're above the atmosphere. You, That's you right. are in space. You are. And, and technically you are in space for these vehicles, the sort of international... You passed uh, the line. You passed the line. The international <laughs> agreed upon boundary of space at 100 kilometers. Uh, these vehicles will be flying above that. I yeah. could see that as the excitement of a, of you'll a get, tourist. You'll get yes. your astronaut wings for, yeah. for real. Yeah, they, they actually have little astronaut wings. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. They do. They will. Oh, that's they great. Will. Yeah. That's, yeah. But for scientists, we're talking... A few minutes, five minutes. Yeah, what can you, you do in five minutes? What can you do? Right? That's the, what's that's the, exactly what's right. the benefit here when we talk this, about, you know, long shuttle missions or spacecraft yep. in yep. orbit? This is bridging the gap. This is a very important gap to bridge between the 20, 23, 25 seconds of microgravity that you can get on a parabolic aircraft. And hundreds of people fly every year to do very important research on those parabolic so aircraft. So these are aircraft that go into... A steep yeah, dive. That's right. Yeah. And you get about 25 seconds of zero G, and people do research on impacts and cratering. And in 25 nozzles. seconds? Yes, yes, yes. Fluids research, understanding Fluids. how fires burn in zero G. Got to do uh, fast science. Particulate. And erosion from jets, yep. on yep. landing, say, on the lunar surface. Particulates in microgravity, a very important hmm. commercial application is the packing of pharmaceuticals, all those little capsules uh, that are filled with little tiny little pellets for uh, pharmaceuticals. Understanding the physics of particulate flow, when you go into a new regime in microgravity, for instance, you learn a lot more about the physics. And so that's just one commercial application, for instance. So what can you do in three or four minutes? Well, imagine having ten times longer microgravity than you would on one of these aircraft. One of the things I'm really interested in is doing astronomy yep. from above the Earth's atmosphere. You're getting up above the atmosphere that blocks certain wavelengths that are hard to observe at from their surface. Ultraviolet. Ultraviolet, exactly, right. and some infrared windows mm -hmm. as well. So I think there's a lot of things that we can learn to do in this suborbital regime. As Dan said, it's bridging a gap, and so you're going to be able to do something new and unique there. Let me let me just point into another another way of looking at this. Um, space flight, um, flying an experiment on the International Space Station is very expensive, both in terms of the time commitment to get ready for that flight and prepare your experiment. You've got one chance to make it right for you know maybe multi millions of dollars experiment. Uh, to fly number. an experiment to the space station. To fly an experiment to the space station, in which case you're probably only going to have that one opportunity, or maybe a few if you're lucky. Think of these vehicles as training wheels for the space station, training wheels for your experiment. It's training that next generation of scientists and engineers to get ready for the big leagues, so to speak. Not that the science done here isn't the big leagues, but it's, it offers that opportunity where, in this case, 
Failure is an option, the barrier to entry in terms of both cost and the flight opportunity, the frequency of flight opportunities, that barrier is much lower. And so this is an opportunity to learn from what breaks and what doesn't work so well in an iterative fashion so that you're, you can get that much more out of your, out of your experiment. It gives you a chance to do kind of proof of concept Absolutely. and to right. shake out the bugs. And another advantage is that you have the scientist right there with their experiment. And so you can interact with your experiment. And this goes a long way to what Dan was just saying to reducing the cost as well. You don't have to have a fully automated experiment to send up, say, to the space station so that it doesn't need to be tended. You know, you can be there and work with it. And you're doing basically, in this case, it's very, very important. You're finally opening up to the space scientist, the field environment that has always been available to, you know, all of our other scientific colleagues, the oceanographer who goes to the bottom of the ocean, the geologist who goes out to the outcrop, the botanist who travels to Indonesia to collect rare right. orchids. This is often that opportunity for the space scientists to finally get to the field and work in situ on the research that they're interested in. Okay, so let's talk about this for a second. We're talking about the scientist going to the field. In this case, the field is space. space. That's correct. So you now have some scientist astronauts. That's right. To mm -hmm. do this, you're not just sending up. And from what I understand, you two are, in fact, training to be I don't know the term, but citizen astronauts, uh, scientist we astronauts? We want to be researchers up there flying suborbital flights, carrying out research. What does that involve for you? Are, are you in training right now? Yes, yes. We've begun training. We just recently did a zero-G flight, which was so exciting. It was really fun. And we had a list of tasks that we were trying to learn how to do in the zero-G environment so that when we fly a suborbital flight, we're prepared for the zero-G environment. And we're not busy trying to adjust to it, but we're able to concentrate on our experiment. How not just how you feel, but how things react in a zero-g. That's right. How do things react? One thing I learned is that you have to be very gentle. Slow and gentle is much more effective than quick and fast. Quick and fast has unintended consequences in zero-g. You go flying through the cabin. You don't want to go bouncing off the walls or your instrument experiment. going bouncing exactly. off the walls. And there are other aspects of the training as well. That path to space on pretty much any of these vehicles, it's going to be an energetic ride no matter how you do it. And some of the trajectories that you'll be flying on are going to be um, provocative, shall we say, from a, uh, <laughs> from a uh, motion sickness point of view. So some of the training that we're going through also is to get our high-performance jet aircraft uh, legs back and spend some time in those aircraft pulling G's, um, mimicking so these the are, SI these profiles. are um, the high-performance military-type aircraft. Uh, the F-104 Starfighter. Doing, uh, pulling a few more G's than you might in a, at a carnival uh, or that's, something that's like that. That's correct. But there's right. also a centrifuge that we train in. And so All the things we see in the right stuff that they went through. That's right. That's right. That's right. And, and, and the purpose here is not to, you know, not to go and pretend we're astronauts and go through all and, and basically you know, add that much more cost to the whole point of beginning to do this. The point is to be sure that we're actually ready to do the job and get the goods, so to speak, during those few minutes that we have to do the work. And so you want to be prepared physically so your body has a sort of muscle memory of what this is going to feel like so you're not overwhelmed with that experience when the time comes. You know, again, I come back to the analogy of the oceanographers. I mean, you know, the scientists who go to the deep sea vents in Alvin, they don't learn to drive the submarine. They're not, they're not, they don't go to submarine school and so on. But there are safety briefings. There are things they need to keep in mind to make sure that they can be effective in that environment. And so we're, we're, we're going through you know, essentially that, that process here, except it's space flight. So it's a different environment. There are a few extra things you need to learn, but it's the kind of things you need to do to be safe and be proficient um, in the job you're trying to get done as a researcher. So 
when do you expect to get your wings? <laughs> soon, as soon as they're ready. Um, you know, we're probably looking at, at, at uh, you know, maybe not this calendar year, but probably not three or four years from now, somewhere in the in between. There's no real set physical date yet, and uh, that's going to be governed, um, as Kathy said, when the flight providers are ready. And when they're ready, that means when they, when they feel that it's safe to go fly, that's when we're ready to go, too. Thanks to Joel Parker for that report. More information about the next generation suborbital research possibilities and the presentations made at the recent conference can be found at nsrc.swri.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Today's show was produced with the help of Ted Burnham and Shelley Schlender. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music by Mulatu Astatki. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org. Question or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Joel Parker. <laughs>